We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Am I the only one who thinks this is totally insane? Rob, we're fighting theological injustice here. They're not using just weights and measures. He said we have 50 listeners. I think he's being generous. Rage of Bible is interpreted by experts. Rob, are you as shocked as I am? It's nonsense. If you've given any money to this, you need to complain. You ask for your money back. I don't know about you, but I find this annoying. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb show, the show where theology matters and scholarship counts and theology matters. My name is Caleb Haig and with me, a Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? How's it going, brother? Going well. Shalom, Caleb. Yeah, you look deep in thought, searching for stuff over there already, I can tell. Always, always. My wife says I have my head in the clouds too much. No. We, we got a lot going on this week. Not only do we have a great topic. Uh, I, you know, a lot of people think that we're against uh, FFOZ, but I got to say a, a big thank you to FFOZ for giving us so much material uh, to be able to fill up probably the next month and a half. Uh, it, they, they've really they've really just <laughs> they, they raised the bar in terms of giving uh, material for the Rob and Caleb show. Um, anyway, so there's been a lot going on. We took last week off and played a interview with uh, Dr. Chris Tilling. Good feedback from that, as uh, as we've seen. Uh, and uh, and not only that, but Rob and I both got a little bit of a little bit of a rest there. What'd you do for the vacation, Rob? Well, we took we took my folks on a whitewater rafting uh, adventure in Montana. Nice. Did you flip? <laughs> no, no. We told the guys we're like, you know, my parents <laughs> are in their seventies, <laughs> but the water was nice. We had, I think four generations uh, in three rafts basically it was nice. awesome and the weather was really lovely i don't even it was like just below 80 and then the water was probably around 70 degrees or so much of the trip kids were just floating around jumping in just floating down the raft or floating down the river and then there were places where we stopped and the kids uh, jumped off rocks and stuff uh off high rocks into the water and we've got a bunch of video i borrowed uh, chronister's gopro and got some footage and nice so we're gonna um hopefully my brother one of my brothers gonna be able to compile all the videos and stuff and put a fun family thing for my folks uh together sweet that sounds awesome how about you what what you guys do we went up uh north about two and a half hours to uh, a place called mount vernon mount vernon's fun it's a little uh little logging town uh there's not a whole lot to do there they got a really nice little uh, uh brewery there and the food is excellent with a very good gluten-free options as well. But uh, Mount Vernon's really just a jumping point for us. So my parents go up to Deception Pass every year. So that's about 25 minutes away from Mount Vernon. So we're able to go up and, and see them while they're camping. And roughing it for my wife is a, is like a Motel 6. So she would never, you know, tents are out. So I got to wait until my son's a little bit older to actually go camping. But uh, so we stayed at a nice little Airbnb, had our own little room and our own kitchen and our own bathroom. And it was great. Then we, uh, I think the highlight for me was we went to another little town that was maybe 20 minutes away called LaConnor. 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 That's where my folks like to go there for the fest. The, is it the Tulip Festival? Yes, or, they uh, got, yep. They got the Tulip Festival there. Just yeah. beautiful. Like I remember when we lived over in Linwood, we, a couple times we went up, just acres and acres of colored 
flowers just beautiful lacan is one of those little towns it's small enough that like you you can walk through it in a day and, and see everything but there's a lot of older retired people you know like walking around doing but i gotta say there's there's a lot of fun stuff for the kids too so yeah we had we had a great time it wasn't a very long trip uh we came back and kind of you know hung out at our house as well so you know that was about it yeah. All right. Well, uh, on to uh, on to other things. Then uh, I I suppose we should mention this. I now did you see the announcement by PFT? That's Passion for Truth uh, last week. I have no. I don't follow that, so I don't know. Okay. So at... for those who might not know, in the messy there, I would consider them more Hebrew roots. Um, I'm I I'm not completely sure, but I I think that PFT has basically taken a uh, two house theology. Uh, even though they, uh, you know, well, who's that was Staley, Staley right? Right, yes, Jim okay, Staley. No longer, obviously. So, yeah. So basically, what the what the uh, the board members and I thought it, it was very well handled. Uh, they did it very. I could tell a lot of prayer went into it. You could tell that they were wrestling with how to go about things. Um, it looks like uh, uh, Mr. Staley, even though he gave up the reins. Uh, uh, at PFT was still uh, in control of of the board and and trying to assert his authority even from prison over uh, Passion for Truth, and it also looks like there might have been some misconduct on his b- behalf with uh, Passion for Truth funds. Uh, that's that's what the letters seem to imply. Oh um, yeah, and so they uh, they basically decided to dissolve Passion for Truth. And they are going to. Uh, uh, it, it it sounded like uh, the the gentleman who's currently pastoring there is actually going to start his own uh, his own ministry, and uh, it looks like maybe some of the other board members might might go with him uh, to start the other ministry. But Passion for Truth is dissolving uh, because. How long did that ministry? Do we know like when did they get planned? When when was the beginning? Because I know I think it was was it last year or the year before. Some of our friends told us that they had a family move from their community to—is it St. Louis? Like, uh, so, you know, family moving, and so I think there's been more than one family moving, you know, a couple thousand miles to be part of that. Group. Sure. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, I, I my heart goes out to all the all the people in the congregation there. You know, I know that it's kind of been a whirlwind, and actually, I know I know people uh, on the board there. You know, David uh, David Wilbur is a is a friend and and somebody that. I really enjoy uh, talking to he, he certainly loves the Lord and, and he's been an encouragement to me. So uh, I've been uh, in, in prayer for him and his family. You know, they just had a, a baby. And, and uh, so I know that the, the, basically the staff at PFT got laid off. Mm. So I've been in prayer for them. But, uh, you know, I was unlike Staley, uh, I felt like the board really, really uh, uh, went about things the right way. And, and uh, so... Uh, prayers are with the the staff of uh, PFT as they begin to dissolve their ministry, and and hopefully the Lord has uh, great and, and better things in store for them. Uh, and with in, with a whole bunch of wisdom and lessons uh, moving forward. Sure. I hope you know we all like to take away when we have difficult times when when things go different than what we anticipate. As disciples of Yeshua, it's upon us to go. Okay, Lord, help me see the wisdom here so that I can uh, grow and be more fruitful and not repeat uh, something that I was blind to or or foolish about. Well, I feel like that. I feel like the Lord does have something in store for him. Uh, I think that the, their uh, spiritual maturity is starting to, uh, 
starting to shine through. And to, I mean, I'm not going to say anything bad about uh, Staley. I think the Lord's dealing with him how he will deal with him. But uh, I think that uh, it might be, you know, even though it was very hard for a lot of the staff and, and congregants and obviously Jim's family uh, for him to go to prison, it might be uh, the tool that God used to put some of these uh, some of these believers into uh, into the place where God wants them to be. So uh, as hard as some of those lessons can be, you know, the Lord works everything together for the good of those who love him. So, okay, let's move on. We have so much to get to. I, this is going to be two shows. I can already tell. We're going to have to, and not only that, but I've queued up the Hoff Goes Off mu- uh, music just in case, um, because I I think, I feel, I feel it might be one of those days. So let's get right to it then. Uh, First Fruits of Zion, FFOZ, uh, put out uh, a bunch of videos in the past, uh, maybe it was two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, and uh, we we did a, uh, we did, we looked at one by uh, Jeremiah, is it Jeremiah? Yeah, Michaels, or Michael, uh, who is Boaz, Michael's son, and uh, and he was talking about uh, a Jewish hashkafa, uh, that is a... A worldview or what Rob, now this was two weeks ago, so I'm trying to re, uh, recall people's memory to this, but he was talking about uh, the oral Torah, quote unquote oral Torah, whatever that may be, uh, he never defined that, but oral Torah and, and a Messianic Jewish hashkafa. Um, so now the whole the whole conference that they did, they, they did the conference back in 2015, but they just now released all these videos to the public on their YouTube page. Uh, now, I've been kind of going one by one through these videos, and and uh, Mr. Michael, his his lecture was the one that I saw first, and so that was the one that we did two weeks ago. Uh, during uh, during our time off, actually, Rob and I recorded uh, a a show looking at one of Toby Janicki's lectures, and uh, I had I think I had maybe nine clips uh, for that show. And Rob and I recorded one of the shows, and uh, we only got through the first three. <laughs> In true Rob and Caleb fashion, uh, so uh, we're gonna. We're just so so darn argumentative. That's right. That's right. Uh, no, uh, we actually decided to stop and do two shows on Janicki's, um, uh lecture, and the reason we're we're going to do that is because we will be at camp one one uh, day. Uh, and then one week in September, and then the next week I'll be on vacation again. So we'll actually have two weeks in a row. However, I think that we should do a special broadcast where, like we always do, from camp. So I'm not sure what, we'll fit oh, that. Yeah. In. Oh, we'll fit that, yeah, we'll fit that. Yeah, we'll fit that in somewhere. I don't know. Maybe we'll have a, a special two hour. Bro- I don't know. Who knows? But it, can we still do it live? We cannot do it live from uh, camp, unfortunately, because they don't have internet there. They those. I know those campers, people out there in the wilderness. So anyway, uh, so we could go one of two ways. I know which way we're going to go, but I let's dive in. Oh yeah, I watched uh, I watched D. Thomas Lancaster's, uh, which was entitled uh, what was it entitled? Radial ecclesiology. And then I also started watching Aaron Eby's on uh, a uh, halakhic theory or hashkafa, halakhic hashkafa. Uh, and uh, there's just, you know, honestly, 
I know that I know that those guys think that we're picking on them, and and I I feel bad for that because I'm not trying to pick on them, uh, but they, they man, I, I wish that there was just a little bit more or some maybe some theological training. Uh, it it really shows that 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 uh, some of the some of the guys, not all the guys, but some of the guys at, at F of O Z, just have not had to uh, had to deal in a in a scholarly atmosphere. I, th- I think. Well, do you think they would agree, or do they, they might disagree? I think that they would probably disagree um, with, but, that statement. with that statement, but I, it feel what I get from, and I could be wrong on this, but what I get from some from these lectures and uh, from Aaron Eby. Now, I don't know, maybe uh, Mr. Eby has education uh, in, in some theological facet. It doesn't seem to me as though he does, uh, but maybe he does. Uh, however, it certainly did not shine through uh, uh, while listening to one of his lectures, I uh, said to my dad, and does Mr. Eby have any, uh, any theological training? Cause it, it doesn't, he's not, you know, he just makes statements. And, and we so saw, we'll, the, we'll, yeah, we'll get into, the, I guess we're going to hear some clips today, right? Uh, well, well I, I, I don't, I don't know if we're going to be able to get to that. I have, uh, I oh. think I have 20 clips. I have 20 clips here. So I'd be surprised if we get to Eby's and that's why I said it would be uh, two shows most likely. The sense I get, it, this if like one of the underlying currents I get, and because Caleb, my exposure to this has been through you, uh, your, the, uh, the clips from the different pres- presenters, and having talked with with uh, the president of FFOZ, you know, um, coffee interactions, you know, and stuff like that. I, the sense I get is a basic um, appreciation for how modern Orthodox Judaism presents itself to the world, primarily in English translation. In other words, what I feel is like they've read, they're very well read on how Orthodox rabbis represent Judaism to the world in, in the marketplace, like in book, popular books. Uh, like maybe the, um, the, uh, the, the art scroll. I, I, if I imagine with the, the bookshelf of, of these presenters, I would see probably a lot of art scroll, uh, a lot of Feldheim publishing. See, see, and, but... and, and what I see is that they're reading these and then they're taking that, what they read as a rabbinic quote, hashkafa. And, and because they love the Jewish people, they have a, an ideal of Jewish nationalism and Jewish peoplehood. And they want to, up, they want to read the gospels in a way that upholds this. Um, therefore, and because you can't read Art Scroll or Feldheim without, uh, and other publishers without it being very clear that oral Torah is the word of God. And so they're trying to say, how do I preserve this? How do I hold on to these treasures that I have from the Art Scroll publications and the Feldheim and others? How do I have these and still have Yeshua? Well, so what, what my, and this is just my feeling is that then they come back to the gospels with the lens of Art Scroll. I agree with that completely. However, the and one so they're trying they're trying to be very very respectful. So I get high level of honor and respect of of all Jewish things Jewish. Tradition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, See, and, but, and, but but but, and but, but it, them, that's where we got to get we get into slippery territory there because we could be accused of being supersessionist or even anti-Semitic. I I would suggest I think some people probably have called us that before. Um, or idiots when it comes. You know, we've been told by the Shapira and his posse. You know that we're 
like children you playing said with, posse. <laughs> but, uh, nice. playing with uh, Fisher Price. Remember using your Fisher Price uh, yeah. uh, software or whatever, you know. So stuff like this, it's like, okay, there's this is the area where it's like, okay, we, we want to be respectful, but we, by Yeshua, as disciples of Yeshua, we take very seriously that we're to distinguish between the Word of God and the traditions of man. And that there's a difference, and that when the traditions of man get put up to nullify the word of God, that's a form of idolatry. Okay, I agree with you completely. Okay. But here, but here's the thing: is that the one thing that I think has slipped through the cracks in this is that yes, you're, I, I would agree with you that I think that the staff of FOZ, for the most part, has kind of uh, glorified this art scroll, this idea of art scroll Judaism. I don't, I mean, I'm making that up. Art scroll Judaism. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How, however. However, the one which has that, a little bit of Chabad. And yeah, but yeah, but that's my yeah, but that's the problem that I have, and that's the thing that that I don't see them ever trying to deal with. They talk about this Hashkafa, they talk about this worldview, they talk about this theology, they talk about you know all these laws and these rabbis and all these kind of things. However, Orthodox Judaism, for the most part, not all of it, but I would say that the majority of of Orthodox Judaism today incorporates a significant amount of, and not even just the Hasids, but just Orthodox Judaism, does incorporate a lot of Jewish mysticism into what they believe. And we don't see FFOZ dealing with, with this problem at all. They don't see, they don't want to talk about, you know, they don't want to talk about the Zohar. They don't want to talk about modern, uh, modern mysticism, which well, someone ha- told me they wrote about, they've write, written about, they quote the Zohar. They see, quote the Zohar. They, they quote the Zohar. This, this to me is mixing things that essentially differ. You cannot eat of the table of demons and eat of the table of the Lord at the same time. And in my mind, the Zohar is the table of demons. I, and I know that I've been called anti-Semitic for having that view, but what are you going to do? Okay, let's listen to uh, Mr. Lancaster. I've no, Please understand, Mr. Lancaster has his degree in, in English, I believe in English. Uh, English lit. Uh, he is a very good speaker, and he's and and actually he's a he's a fine writer as well. Uh, uh, however, uh, man, there was j- now the other thing that I have to tell you about this lecture. Now I don't know if you went and listened to any of this, Rob. So uh, he's gonna he's gonna talk about a book in the beginning, and then he's going to lay out what this book says for the first twenty five minutes of his forty two minute lecture. So half the half the lecture. Uh, oh, just over half the lecture. Now, listen. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump clips here because I want to play the first clip for everybody, and then I'm gonna play a clip that's down my list of ways because I, I just want you to hear them back to back. Here you go. Here's the first clip. Okay. Radial ecclesiology uh, expresses itself in the theme of this conference: Messianic Judaism for all nations. I'll sh- I should say now he's what he's uh, what what Mr. Lancaster's doing here. He's, he's going to talk about two different ecclesiologies. That is a bilateral ecclesiology, and he's going to explain that a little bit. And then he's going to talk about radial ecclesiology. Yeah, radio. not radio, not yeah, radio. Radial. radial. Yeah, this, this uh, is a term that he has come up with himself. And he even says in the lecture, we can get rid of this term after this lecture. I'm just trying, I just gave it a, a, a word for, for the lecture. I doubt that it'll go away after this lecture. In fact, he says, I'm not trying to write a book about this or anything, but it certainly wouldn't surprise me if, if this uh, turned into a book itself. Here we go. In the theme of this conference, Messianic Judaism for All Nations. I'll show you 
what this means. First, let's talk about post-missionary Messianic Judaism and bilateral ecclesiology a little bit. This, this idea was really put forward in 2004 by Rabbi Dr. Mark Kinzer, the release of this book, Post-Missionary Messianic Judaism. This book um, I mentioned yesterday, uh, this book uh, was um, a watershed moment in the history and development of Messianic Judaism, at least in this country. When this book was released, uh, it came out uh, with a, a lot of um, expectation. There was already a lot of talk about it before it had even gone to press. When it finally came out, uh, whole journals uh, were dedicated, you know, in the Messianic Jewish world, whole journals were dedicated to discussing this book because it was so controversial. It really uh, almost split uh, the existing Messianic Jewish movement in this country between those who perceived the function of Messianic Judaism to be merely missionary outreach and those who perceived it as having its own integrity as a religious system, a legitimate expression of faith in Messiah. Okay, hang on. This is very important. I want you to listen to this again. He says that this book, that is Post-Missionary Messianic Judaism by Dr. Mark Kinzer, which, by the way, I mean, this is... This is uh, you know, it was it was done by uh, what is it, Brazos Press, Brazos Press. Brazos, uh, yeah. Um, you know, Dr. Kinzer has has presented at the ETS and SBL uh, before, uh, and and uh, you know he's he's trying to play uh, play with the, you know he's he's dealing with the with the, with real scholars in some cases. Listen to this one more time though. What Mr. Lancaster says about this is very interesting. Listen, a legitimate expression. Of faith in Messiah. A legitimate expression of faith in the Messiah. I want everyone to keep that in their minds. Okay. So um, I think it's the most important book Messianic Judaism has ever published, post-missionary Messianic Judaism. A fabulous, beautiful piece of work. And if you haven't read it, I recommend it. It's sort of a classic at this point already. Okay. So... Everybody's got that in their mind, right? Here we go. Listen to what he says down the road. So, the bilateral ecclesiology model, I will admit that the model has sociological advantages, has political advantages. Yet, at the same time, I don't believe that the model is the model the apostles had in mind for us. And I don't believe this model would, will be particularly useful in the kingdom. So, Mr. Lancaster. Now, granted, uh, he's taking. So, so, to point what you're pointing out is the post-mission, the basic ecclesiological model proposed by Kinzer's watershed, beautiful book, most important book ever written, is bilateral ecclesiology, right? Well, Which that's is, what. Yeah, that's what he's laying out in this book is right. bilateral and then, ecclesiology. But, but then this presenter goes from saying how great that book is to now saying, while it has different advantages. It doesn't work. It's, it's not probably. It's he doesn't think it's what the apostles had in mind, and it wouldn't work in the kingdom. So the question is then. No, but hang on. Well, listen, oh, okay. listen, listen, listen. I want to play that one. Its own integrity as a religious system, a legitimate expression of faith in Messiah. It's a legitimate expression of faith in the Messiah, but it's not what the apostles had in mind, nor will it work in the kingdom. I mean, oh, but it's but is that first phrase where he says legitimate? It's legitimate. Is he just saying that's what the book 
let's, votes? Let's go. Let's go back and let's it? let's go back. Split uh, the existing Messianic Jewish movement in this country between those who perceived the function of Messianic Judaism to be merely missionary outreach, and those who perceived it as having its own integrity as a religious system, a legitimate expression okay. of faith in Messiah. So he said okay. the book caused us almost caused a split. Yeah, but he but then he who, yeah, but he obviously is in the second camp because listen to what he says. So, um, I think it's the most important book Messianic Judaism has okay, ever to be, published. Okay, maybe he says it's important because it brought up the issues, he not said, because wait, he agrees with okay, it. Okay, hang on just a sec. There's another thing here. I know I'm nitpicking this. I know I'm nitpicking okay, this. But I, at the same, to it. I haven't listened but at to it the same, just, at the same time, he says it's the most important book Messianic Judaism has ever produced. Listen to okay, it again. He, hang on. He doesn't tell. Okay, so um, I think it's the most important book Messianic Judaism has ever published. What about um, the Book of Romans? What about the Book of Galatians? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, he to give him the benefit of the doubt, a generous interpretation of what I'm thinking he's come from is he's he means like modern day Messianic. I Jewish know, but movement. that's the problem with the, these lectures. They never no, okay. they're never going to define here, what they're saying. I would, I would grant that maybe what he means by it's the most important book is that not because he agrees with bilateral ecclesiology, but because it evoked such an important and and uh, intense discussion in its wake. Maybe that's why he thinks it's important. Okay, so but, but when he says it's beautiful, I'm like now all of a sudden that's like a beautiful thing doesn't mean it's true. Something can be beautiful, but but like a painting, right? It, well, that's a beautiful painting. Yeah, but it's not reflective of anything that's actually in reality. I, okay. So I'm a little bit confused by his by the clips we've heard, but I don't necessarily see that he's contradicting when he says he he thinks it's an important book and that he thinks that bilateral ecclesiology is he disagrees with. It. So anyway, I, I, I'm 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 going to have to just uh, just I mean. Spoiler alert here. I'm, I disagree with him. I think that this book is, is, uh, lacks any biblical integrity whatsoever. And, and not only that, but, uh, Dr. Kinzer, uh, you know, I, the thing that the thing, the other thing that needs to be said is Can that I just give, let me give a couple examples just so people, there's probably our listeners who don't even know what this book is. Here's some examples of, uh, of what Kinzer offers. Kinzer says in Mark 7, 19, where it says, and thus he, he cleansed all foods or something like this. He takes it to mean, and thus Jesus, by saying this, uh, that it's not what goes into a man's mouth or comes out of the mouth that causes him unclean or whatever, uh, that particular phrase is in Mark. Thus, Jesus makes all food clean. Kinzer reads that line. He says, oh, Mark was written for Gentile audience. And what this is, is to reassure Gentiles that the dietary laws of the Torah do not apply to them. And he goes on to say that, so the, the clean-unclean is not actual category. In other words, it's not a, a pig is not unclean, a pig is not unclean in and of itself. It's only unclean to Israel. So if a Gentile no, 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 eats no, no, a pig, no, 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 he's yeah, the, he, he, let me finish. Wait, wait, a wait, 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 pig, wait, let me, let me, let me hey, hang finish. on though. Wait, 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 wait. You got to stop though, because you said Israel and he, what, what he means by Israel is Jews. He's, right, okay. he's not Jewish accepting people. Gentiles so as, he, is so Israel. So Kinzer in this book, 
post-missionary Messianic Jews, there's two categories of people in the world. There's Jewish people and non-Jewish people, Jews and Gentiles. Torah is for Jews. Torah is not for non-Jews. So the commandment, so a pig, so part of the, but what Kinzer sees as the miracle of, of salvation in Yeshua is that a Gentile can eat a pig and it doesn't affect his purity. But if a Jew ate the same pig, he becomes unclean. But the pig is not unclean in and of itself, Kinzer argues, but rather it's the word of God that makes it unclean. And it's only unclean for Jews. Okay, that's one example. Here's another example. is the parable of the prodigal son. He says that the earliest believers in Yeshua would have understood the prodigal son. Remember, the prodigal son goes and squanders all the stuff and then comes back. As the, as that they would have read that as being the early Yeshua movement, that that's a symbol of them. They're the prodigal son. And the Pharisees that, re, that, are, that are rejecting them are the older brother. That's what, he's, he, that's what he wants to read that parable. And there's many other readings where you go in um, and you look at how he's taking these passages and he's rereading them in a way that continually affirms Israel. Um, and so, it, anyway, and there's, it's, there's some sleight of hand. It's really frustrating to me to read the book. Um, well, here's the other thing that that uh, is not seen in this book, but he did he did a follow up in this book by Kinzer by Dr. Mark Kinzer, uh, which there there was a whole panel discussion on this book at the ETS last year. Um, he does three years after. There's a there's a, a article called Three Years After. Uh, what's it called? I'm sorry. Post missionary Messianic Judaism. Three years later, reflections on a uh, conversation just begun. However, in this book by Mark Kinzer. Um, he tells us what he means by the Gentile Christian church. Let's read a little bit of this. So this this will reflect, maybe not on Lancaster. Now, this doesn't reflect on Lancaster's view of what the church is, necessarily. However, it does reflect on Dr. Kinzer's view of what the church is. This is on page one, uh, 174. This chapter is called Israel's Messiah and the People of God. Lumen uh, Gentium challenges Messianic Jews. Gentium, uh, Gentium, I'm sorry, Lumen Gentium, which is uh, 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 light to the Gentiles, challenges Messianic Jews, uh, shaped to a great extent by the individualistic ethos of Protestantism. To consider the significance and implications of recognizing the continuity of the church as a real community in time, constituted as organized in the world and as a society. The existence of Messianic Jews challenges Roman Catholics, shaped to a great extent by the supersessionist ethos of traditional Catholic, Catholic culture. To consider the significance and implications of recognizing the con continuity between Israel according to the flesh and the church. The preacher of the papal household, uh, F.R. Renero, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, suggests that the Messianic Jewish movement may be the beginning of the rejoining of Israel with the church. At the same time, he recognizes that this eschatological event will have a profound impact on the church itself. Quote, it is certain that the rejoining of Israel with the church, capital C there, the church, 
will involve a rearrangement in the church. It will mean a conversion on both sides. It will also be a rejoining of the church with Israel. End quote. If Cattle's Ketel uh, Mesa is correct, and our reading of Luma Gentium supports his visionary claim, such a rearrangement will not damage the Catholic Church, but instead enable it to realize its original Catholicity in eschatological fullness. Remember, Catholic means universal. Yeah, but he's talking about the Roman Catholic Church. Right. Mark Kinzer is saying that the Gentile... Cal- or the Gentile Church is the Catholic Church. Yeah, he interacts with well because there's been a voice where Orthodox Jews that don't believe in Yeshua have interacted with the Pope and high-ranking cardinals, and they've done well. Just like the the Catholic Church will also interact with Buddhist monks or the Dalai Lama. You know what I mean? There's this kind of uh, world religion kind of notion, and inside of that you have Orthodox some Orthodox Jewish rabbis representing Judaism to the, to the quote, Catholic Church, Kinzer's kind of worked uh, into that conversation. And so Protestantism, the whole Protestant Reformation becomes a supersessionist, immature kind of movement. Yeah, but, but and, the- and he leans towards Catholicism as, as the true representation of, quote, the church. Agreed with you, I, but the point is, is that no one at any point is, go, you know, is. It seems as though FFOZ is not going to challenge Kinzer on, uh, you know, even though this is a great, beautiful, wonderful book, they're not going to challenge Kinzer on his view that that the Gentiles should be in the Catholic Church praying to Mary, and uh, and uh, right. there's no Papal criticism rule. of idol- there's no criticism of idolatry on uh, on either part. Exactly. Okay, let's there's get. No, it, Let's let's listen to some more Lancaster. He's gonna he's gonna lay out what bilateral ecclesiology is in this book, which he uh, thinks is the greatest publication in Messianic Jewish history. So, uh, uh, bilateral ecclesiology says the assembly of Messiah, the ecclesia, is composed of two separate, separate. I'm see how I'm moving my hands. Separate, but equal parts, side by side. It's bilateral. Bi is two, lateral, side by side. Separate but equal, side by side. Got it? There should be a Jewish part of the assembly which is composed of Jewish believers in Yeshua who live faithful Jewish lives. And there should be a multinational part of the assembly which is composed of Gentile believers in Yeshua who should live faithful Gentile lives. (laughs) Okay, so... I don't understand. I guess I... So he said, basically what he's saying is the Jews should be over here. Why did the laugh? What happened with the laughter? I, I, I had to cut some out there because he, he fumbled. He, uh, he, he made a, a faux pas, and that's why he was laughing. Oh. He was laughing because oh. he made, a, he made a, uh, an error, uh, but it, and it was unimportant. It wasn't, uh, you know, I, I'm not trying to put Mr. Lancaster down for, for uh, his speaking abilities. He is a, he's a phenomenal speaker, honestly. Um, however, what he's, now what he's doing is he's laying out bilateral ecclesiology, not that he necessarily agrees with this. However, he is going to try with his radial ecclesiology to do the same thing, which is that Gentile, you should not keep, and we'll hear this a little bit, you should not be keeping the Torah unless you have formally converted, is what Mr. Lancaster is going to say. Really? Yes. So, okay. 
Let's keep going. And, and how does he come to this conclusion? So there are some parallels between bilateral ecclesiology, which Mr. Lancaster has just uh, uh, kind of defined for us, according to what Kinzer's saying. Now, I'm not putting this necessarily on Lancaster himself. He's, he's defining what, what Kinzer is saying. Now, Lancaster is going to go on to explain how, uh, how Gentiles not keeping Torah and Jews keeping Torah is explained by Scripture. And it seems to me that Lancaster agrees with this with his radial ecclesiology, which we will get to in a, in a few minutes. This is what Lancaster, where Lancaster is going to bring us now. So first of all, he observes that the church does not replace Israel. Observation number two that drives this model is the church contains Jewish people who are living as practicing Jews. I should also say that I've edited this. You can go, it's in your show notes. You can listen to the entire lecture. The whole thing is there for you. I've edited this down uh, just for time's sake. Uh, but he, he expands on every single one of these points that he's making. In the New Testament, all right? The third thing that Rabbi Kinzer notes is that in the New Testament, the church contains Gentiles who are to remain Gentile and not become Jewish or adopt Jewish identity. They are to remain Gentiles, as Paul says in his rule for all the churches. He says, this is one rule I have for all the assemblies. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. That's Jewish identity. Let him not remove Jewish identity. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? That's being a Gentile. Let him not seek circumcision. Don't let him, don't let him try to take on Jewish identity. No, that's, that, that is, can we pause there yeah, for a second? Jewish. Yeah, he's done. Go for okay, it. that is, he's drawing off David Rudolph's book, uh, dissertation, um, Paul's rule in the churches, which is part of that. Um, and there, uh, this is, was interesting because we saw, I think it was SBL, Dr. Rudolph gave a uh, presentation on this, and N.T. This is where N.T. Wright was just shaking his head because they were talking <laughs> about this picture of what it means—a calling. Um, the way I understand this passage is those who have, who are, who were already circumcised, those people who had already converted, thinking yeah. that they needed to, they don't have to go and undo their circumcision. In other words, they, those Gentiles who had already converted before they were believers in Yeshua. So, in other words, people who converted to uh, some sort of Jewish lifestyle, they don't need to undo that. But the people who are not, quote, officially part of that group, they don't need to seek to become part of that group. Well, sure. No, no, and what, it, it, what you're it, talking about, what you're but, talking about. We're not talking about Torah observance. No, we're of course not. not. About, we're not talking about physical circumcision here. We're talking about... Paul's not t telling people not to be feeling like you need to go join that other group because what we have to realize is boots on the ground, you had intense inner circles and then uh, derogatory names for people who were not part of those circles. They called them the foreskins, right? Those who were not part of us. And people felt like they were something less. Then they, 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 they doubted whether they were truly righteous before God. And, then, and so they would start to try to please men and join these clubs in order to feel oh, now I'm okay. That's what Paul's trying to pull the rug out. He, he's, he's trying to pull all the sting or the motivation or the carrot that those different, these different Jewish uh, zealous groups are out there that aren't believers in Yeshua, but they're trying to convert, you know, like, like Matthew 23. You know, you're, 
you're scouring land and sea to convert someone and make him twice the son of hell as you are. Paul's trying to mitigate the damage that those Jewish groups are doing. That's nothing to do with a, a Gentile becoming physically circumcised in obedience oh. to Torah. Okay, but that's, hang on. What what you've just laid out is ba- see that's just it is that Kinzer and now even uh, well I mean FFOZ from what we're seeing from these videos in this conference are basically trying to uh, they're what Paul is preaching against in Galatians and Romans is exactly what these guys are preaching again. They, exactly, they're reading the Gospels through the lens of the Talmud. That's the best way I could explain what they're doing is they're taking a la- later uh, crystallized halakhic categories, and they're imposing them on the text. I don't think any of them read, have studied Greek formally and read Greek or, try, or can actually read the text without re- referring to rabbinic categories, and yeah. that's a big problem. You can't, re- you can't read the Gospels and demand that you use rabbinic lenses to filter the information for you. The, the very fact that they, they're talking Rabbi Kinzer, and they have rabbis, right? My Messianic Judaism is populated with these guys who have rabbis, and they have conversion, right? This is Talmudic uh, practice that they are now defining their lives by, and they necessarily, in order to maintain that position, they have to read the Gospels to support that view. Otherwise, they're never going to come up with a reading that's contrary to, to their view, unless they are willing to say, you know what, the categories of conversion, the categories of rabbinic ordination— at a category of oral Torah, we can we can set those aside because they're not they're not uh, priorities. Our priorities is a written text of Scripture, and until they can prioritize appropriately and put the rock of Yeshua's words as the foundation, and put aside these shifting these later things that that are, you know, you can build the most beautiful temple in the world. Herod did, but Yeshua says not one rock is going to be on another. Why? Because, yes, it's the city of the Holy King, as Yeshua says. Yes, uh, the temple is the place uh, where all nations will, will worship. But Herod's temple and its scheme of dividing things out was man's imposition. Man's imposition, and it was destroyed. And that's what I see these same guys doing. They're taking the Talmud as the template for the world, and they're imposing that on God's word, and it's like Herod's temple. And Yeshua just going to say the same thing that he said about Herod's temples, that not one stone is going to be left on another. You, it could be the most beautiful, appealing thing. And that's the thing. He says, it's a beautiful book, this guy. Oh, this Kinzer's idea is this beautiful book. It reminds me of the, the apostles saying, oh, look at how this beautiful temple. They're, they're trapped in seeing things so uh, narrowly and from later categories of thought that, they, that they're missing the true word of God. That's so, my okay, and, and I actually agree with you now. But at the same time, I want to keep going here because this next this next one, I, I wrote down a comment after I listened to this. Um, it, yeah, I, and and I think that we'll get to a little bit of the heart of the issue here, not the, as FFOZ sees it, but what they're actually teaching, even though they might not even understand it this way. Rabbi Kinzer loosely refers to these two branches of the church as the Church of the Circumcision and the Church of the Uncircumcision. So we have two sub-communities. The Church of the Circumcision is composed of Jewish believers in These Yeshua, are not biblical practicing Judaism. Yeah, that's right. And, and, uh, and Judaism, there's another term, Judaism, practicing Judaism. That These are categories that the Bible do not define. 
Agreed. The Bible does not define what practicing Judaism. The Bible does not define the church of the circumcision and the church of the foreskin on the other. The Bible does not define these categories. And so what Kinzer does, he builds these categories and tells us that we need to use them to think about the Scripture. And when, in fact, I'm saying, no, if we, if we remove your categories, we can't follow your line of thought because you're not building on the Word of God. You're building on these new little categories you're inventing. It's just frustrating. And, and you know, this is not the only time. There's all sorts of scholarship, PhDs over the last centuries that have gotten, uh, they become married or infatuated with their own categories that they design. And then usually, you know, it's 10, 25, 40 years, someone will come along and say, oh, that guy, he had built all these categories and he didn't recognize. Um, it's like Luther, the, the, the new perspective on Paul that E.P. Sanders innovated like in the 70s with Paul and Palestinian Judaism is that, look, Luther was looking at uh, the text of, of Paul, like Romans and Galatians, but Luther's categories of thought were defined by his interaction with the Pope and, and uh, uh, indulgences and people going to Rome and doing the, the, the different uh, climbs of penance or whatever where they do the, the I don't know, they kiss the relics and they, you know, all the different kinds of biz marketing thing. Okay, that was Luther's real-world experience. So his cat prime categories were shaped by that. Then he's taking, and he goes back and he reads Galatians and Romans, and he's going, oh, oh, Jews were trying to work, they were trying to earn their own salvation. It was just, it's almost like the Roman Catholics have become the Judaizers, have become Jewish religion all over again. And so Luther had those categories. That's how he read the scripture in many ways. And E.P. Sanders comes along and says, look, no, we have, we have to get more nuanced than that because those categories uh, can give the false picture in many respects. In the same way, Kinzer, in my view, and, and these presenters we've heard are, are doing a similar thing. They're, they're trapped in these bubbles of categories that they haven't questioned yet. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, to me, it's irresponsible. And that's where, Caleb, I think you and I would agree when, when we say we want to see more rigorous peer review scholarship is those bubbles have not been pricked. You know, they haven't been popped by other scholars. It's because they, it's kind of an insular conversation, I think. Okay, so, so so let's keep going with this uh, with this one because I think this uh, now what he's doing in this comment. I should have set this up maybe a little bit more. What he's doing in this comment in this in this clip, he's kind of now going to start forming what he is calling his radial ecclesiology. So. I think this is actually where he's going to give you points of bilateral ecclesiology and uh, start to, to – uh, he's going to start to show you the difference. So now he's talking about bilateral ecclesiology and kind of exactly what it, preaches, it teaches as opposed to what he's going to present. Composed of Jewish believers in Yeshua practicing Judaism as an expression of their national identity and covenant fidelity. And then there's the Church of the Uncircumcision – this is Gentile believers in Yeshua practicing Christianity. So, and, and this idea is based on the words of, of, of Paul in Galatians when he says, he makes this important statement. He says, I have been entrusted, this is Paul speaking, I have been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. I got to stop it. What does Paul actually tell us that the gospel is? In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. 
There wasn't two gospels according to Paul. There wasn't a gospel to the to the Gentiles and a gospel to the Jews. Right. So he's he he's mixed this category up. Not only that, but the idea. Now, granted, he's talking about Kinzer's view here, but he's going to talk about radio ecclesiology, and it's still this idea that the Gentiles should not be keeping the things that bring on Jewish identity. We can't let that Galatians 2 quote go go without looking at the rest of Scripture. Obviously, what I believe Paul's point is making is that Paul's aware that he's a newcomer on the scene. Paul's aware that Peter was the one who preached at Pentecost to Israel, and that and that there's been many believers coming to faith, many Jewish Israelites, right, coming to faith in Yeshua through what God was doing through Peter. And Paul's acknowledging that. But but uh, at the same token, Luke makes it clear in Acts that Peter also ministered to non-Jews. Acts 10, right, for example. So, and then Paul himself went and preached to Jews. Sometimes he was fruitful, like Berea was a big fruitful. Sometimes communities divided, some believe. And, but Paul found a lot of fruitfulness under uh, Gentiles. And that's all Paul. That's all. That's the only point Paul's making. But these guys see that. Oh, oh, see, it must be two churches. Peter's duty was to the to Jews. Paul's to Gentiles, and therefore we have two canons. We have Paul's writings, which are the Gentile Bible canon, and Peter and James and John's writings, which are to the Jews. And we actually have a canon within a canon, and that Messianic Jews should read should primarily read only that stuff written by. Peter, because he was the preacher to the to the circumcision, and and we should avoid and you know let Gentiles read uh, Romans and Galatians because that's for them. See, but here's the thing. Now I wrote this down. I'll read what I wrote. I said Lancaster is going back to his Christian roots on this because he is assuming salvation is justifi- is justification. To accept what Lancaster is truly saying in radial ecclesiology as law as well as within bilateral ecclesi- ecclesiology. You have to believe there are two separate ways of salvation. Since sanctification is part of salvation, which we see throughout Scripture, if there is two separate ways of sanctification, one for a Jew and one for a Gentile, then there are two ways of salvation within the body of the Messiah. Do these guys even realize what they're doing? Does Kinzer even realize what he's doing? They're saying that there's two separate ways of salvation. Right, and here's one thing that I, I see in Kinzer's work that was a little bit frustrating when Kinzer's writing about Acts 15. He's, he, he talks about how Gentiles, these Gentiles become pure by faith. He fails to unpack the fact that what Peter's point is, is that only in Yeshua does one obtain a, a clean heart and have the Torah written on it. In, in other words, it's Jews too need to come to Yeshua to have pure heart. Yeah. That Jewish, the Jews who they could they could practice outwardly all the Torah they want, but unless they're in Yeshua, their heart is impure. I mean that's just and that might sound people say, well that's anti Semitic to say it. Well that's that's the point of in Acts fifteen. It says is that purity of heart is comes through faith in Yeshua, whether you're Jew or a Gentile. And and that's the new covenant being fulfilled where God puts his Torah on our heart and we see our sin, we see our need for him. We see that we have nothing apart from him, and we confess our need to him. We confess that we are sinners in need of his salvation, and we desire to grow in knowledge of grace and his holiness and wisdom 
and love and understanding and all those most weightiest matters of the Torah. And what Paul time and time again is saying is that these Jewish groups out there that are trying to convince you to be circumcised or do you need this or that is that they do not, they're not walking in the Torah of the Messiah. They don't understand love your neighbors yourself. Why? They might be able to recite it, but they're not thinking of it. They don't, their orientation is not new creation in Messiah. Love your neighbors yourself. They're thinking it. I mean, you can read the book of Jubilees. You can read all these other sectarian books from the Dead Sea Scrolls. They, they quote the same scriptures. They quote the just shall live by faith. They quote love your neighbors yourself and these types of things. But if you look at the context, they take those scriptures to mean something very different. And that's, that is re- man-made religion. That's not new creation life in Yeshua. And I, that's the message that just does not come through in, in post-missionary mess, Messianic Judaism. It's the idea of, that God's doing something. He's creating a new kind of human in Messiah. And if you're in him, you are a new creation. You are born again. You, you're born from above. You have a, an orientation to the heavenly Jerusalem, Paul calls it. And that's, you, that's your identity if there's any identity that's being promoted time and time again in the apostolic writings, it's new life, new resurrection life in Messiah Yeshua. That's it. And that it will bear fruit. <laughs> <laughs> and it will bear fruit. But this idea of Jewish identity or Jewish practice, all of a sudden we're not talking about Torah anymore. We're not talking about God's commandments. We're not talking about sin and holiness. We're talking about Jewish practice. Well, Look all through the Bible. You're never going to find the phrase Jewish practice. Jewish identity. Look through all the Bible. You're never going to find something explained to you, Jewish identity. So what we do is we make these little ideas that sound that sound appealing, and we build castles with them. But those castles, the storm's going to come, waters are going to come, and it's going to wipe those things away. This isn't reality television. This is actual reality. Here's the thing. Gary says to me, Caleb, I don't think they're saying what you think they're saying. I think they have different a different idea about truth. They are populists in the respect that they are wanting to move the ordinary person using whatever language is needed, changing definitions whenever needed, being vague, and at the same time, acting as if they have the answer. Here's the thing. <clears throat> I don't think the F of OZ is attempting to say what I think they're saying. However, they are saying what I think they're saying. They're saying that the Jews have to keep the the Torah, the things that they are saying are Jewish things, like the Sabbath and like the kosher laws and like all, the, all these things, <clears throat> and that the Gentiles don't have to keep those things. Whether they want to admit it or not, whether they know it or not, whether or not they realize it or not, what this is saying is that there are two ways of sanctification. Since sanctification is a part of salvation, we have justification. Justification is through faith alone, right? Justification is not the only part of salvation, though. Justification and sanctification and rejuvenation are all part of salvation. Now, I'm not familiar with all the library that that fine of David or FFOZ have put out. But I, I agree with you, Caleb, that I don't get this. That this is where we say we don't see a rigorous theological um, foundation to it. But you know what? I, I, to, you know, on the flip side, perhaps uh, someone from FFOZ or one of these groups might say, well, you, what, I'm not going to impose. I'm coming from a Jewish hashkafah. And so your concept of theology, your concept of ordering justification 
and sanctification and glorification and so on is a is a that's a a Christian theological construct that is foreign to the scriptures. Now I would say we could easily go to Paul. <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, and so but that's a that would be an important discussion to have. Um, but I think one thing I get from Kinzer is and and these little bits we've is there's a suspicion they're suspicious of reform theology. Oh, of course yeah and they want to distance themselves but part of their a desire to pursue and be accepted by quote popular judaism yeah. or mainstream judaism whatever that means the people of israel they want to simultaneously distance themselves from even any sense of reform or evangelical uh background. Can I, can I share something? Yeah, Can sure. I read a text? It's, a, it's by Kinzer. It's from, it, they wrote a book, uh, well, there was a book edited, Zondervan published it in 2013, Introduction to Messianic Judaism. Yeah. I think a couple family camps ago we, we talked about it, because uh, it's funny, from Messianic Judaism, and they didn't really talk much about the Epistle to Hebrews in it, but in any event, um, it's a, it, edited by uh, Joel Willits and uh, David Rudolph, and both who are, I think Joel Willits is a evangelical pastor, he so is. he represents the Gentile side, and then uh, uh, Dr. Rudolph represents the Messianic Jewish side, where there's conversion in between, right? You have separate religions, basically. Um, and they come together to edit this multi-article uh, book. Anyway, one of them is written by uh, Dr. Mark Kinzer, and he writes a, an article uh, chapter 11 is called Messianic Jews and the Jewish World. And this is 2013. So this is about 10 years after he wrote Post-Missionary Messianic Judaism. But I, I'd like to share, it's a little bit extended, but it's his conclusion of his article on the state. What has happened now this many years later? He says, uh, while the question of the Messianic Jewish relationship to the wider Jewish world has been front and center for the movement as a whole, in the 21st century, few outsiders to the movement have been aware of the intense discussion that has taken place. Um, the new perspectives are far from dominant and have yet to have an impact on attitudes in the wider Jewish community. What I'm, what, just to can translate, what he's saying is that we've had all this intense discussion about how Messianic Judaism connects with greater Israel, but the larger Jewish community doesn't recognize all that this conversation. He goes on to say, as far as Jewish communal leaders are concerned, they're still dealing with Hebrew Christianity. So in other words, he's acknowledging here, 2013, looking back, we might have written post-missionary Messianic Judaism 10 years ago. We might have had all these journal articles and discussions and forums and seminars about it. But from the Jewish communal rabbis, the traditional Jewish rabbis, sure. they still say you guys are Hebrew Christianity. And then he goes, he continues, for the first three decades of its existence— the Messianic Jewish movement adhered to the presuppositions of traditional evangelical ecclesiology, soteriology, eschatology, and hermeneutics. So the first three decades of Messianic Judaism, Kinzer says, based on traditional evangelical ecclesiology, soteriology, eschatology, hermeneutics. While it claimed to be a movement internal to the Jewish world, most outsiders, Jewish, Christian, and secular, viewed it as a subset of evangelical Christianity. In the first decade of the 21st century, so that would have been the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So he's saying now the first decade of the 21st century, these prepositions, presuppositions have been challenged. A vocal minority 
has called for radical identification with the Jewish community and an identity distinct from the evangelical world. That's what he wants to do. We want to separate from evangelical. We want to be recognized as legitimate Judaism. He continues, this may be a passing, this is what's so telling here. He wraps this up with these few sentences. This may be a passing current of thought with little impact on the future of Messianic Judaism, or it may set the stage for the 21st century evolution of the movement. Those who consider Messianic Judaism of any importance will be watching closely as the next chapters of the story unfold. That's the end of his article. In other words, it's an experiment. He says, as of now, we look, we've, we've been at this uh, post-missionary mess- Messianic Judaism now for 10 years, and we've been really passionate in our discussions, and our articles, our meetings, but the rabbis still see us as Hebrew Christians. And I admire him for being so, you know, forthright about it. They still see us as Hebrew Christians. Um, and so what we're doing in the last 10 years, we're trying to radically identify. We're radically modifying our lives to identify with the Jewish community and to mark out a distinct identity from the evangelicals. We're not evangelical. That's the sign. Like if, if Messianic Jews were on a street corner and they had a cardboard, with, with it would say, I'm Jewish, not evangelical. I'm not evangelical because that's the message they want to send to traditional rabbinic world. We're not evangelical. We don't have uh, evangelical ecclesiology. We don't have evangelical soteriology. We don't have evangelical eschatology or hermeneutics. We are thoroughly Jewish. Therefore, when, when we read the Gospels, we read it through the lens of Talmud and Rashi and Rambam and the Zohar and Hasid, uh, Hasidut. And that's, and that's what they want. They want to be in that world. So when we say, look. Well, okay, but, but, but hang on just a sec. At what cost? That's the question. And that's, that's, the, the, that's, thing. that's the thing is that, is that they want that at the cost of, of, of downgrading the, the apostolic scriptures. They're okay. not interested in evangelical theology. Okay. Hey, they want to let, distance themselves from it. Okay, I want to keep going with, with some of these clips because I want to listen to what uh, Lancaster has to say about his new term, radial ecclesiology, which he hopes is not a term after this lecture, however he's coining it. So that's, that's radial ecclesiology. How is it different from the bilateral model? Well, bilateral ecclesiology presumes two separate people groups. Messianic Jews on the one hand, Gentile Christians on the other. Uh, and for the most part, they're doing their own thing, but mutually respecting and supporting one another. Bilateral ecclesiology presumes two separate religious expressions, Messianic Jews practicing the Torah, the Sabbath, the calendar, the dietary laws, and Gentile Christians are practicing their various forms of traditional Christianity within the boundary of traditional Christian holy days and so forth, You know, whatever that expression looks like depending on which flavor of Christianity you're in. Bilateral ecclesiology presumes two separate religious venues. Uh, Messianic Jews worship and congregate in synagogues. Uh, Messianic Gentiles, if you will, uh, we don't, wouldn't use that terminology in bilateral ecclesiology, but they would be uh, worshiping and congregating in churches. Bilateral ecclesiology presumes two separate religious Okay, so he's still looking at bilateral ecclesiology. Let's move on to radial ecclesiology. Real quick. Oh, I need help. Does Lancaster, was he, would he consider himself Jewish or a Messianic Gentile? 
I think he would he can, say he's a messianic Jew or is he a messianic Gentile? I, I, I really don't know the answer. He can, he can, continues to speak of himself as a messianic Gentile. However, I believe that he has gone. I can only assume because of of his lectures and the way that he lives his life that he has gone through some form of what he believes is conversion. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe he considers himself uh, adherent of radial ecclesiology. Yes, right? but I, but but he, but, he, but he believes that since he's gone, I, I I would think that since he's gone through some form of conversion, he has. Uh, been able to take on the the parts of scripture that uh, are for the Jews. So let's I listen. Really to what don't, I, I read his book on Galat. He has a com- little commentary on Galatians. Um, that's really the only thing I think I've ever interacted with. It's there's some really frustrating things uh, that he sure. does in that book too. But okay, anyway, let's let's listen. But I don't to remember him point. I don't remember him describing himself. Let's listen to him to him set up a radial ecclesiology. I'm sorry, I've been trying to find get to this clip. In the days of the apostles, all the assemblies of Messiah, whether Jewish believers, Gentile believers, or mixed assemblies of both, which would have been the case in most places, all the assemblies of Messiah fell under the authority of James, the brother of Yeshua, and the council of elders in Jerusalem, and the apostles in Jerusalem. And this is why James and the elders were able to offer legislation pertaining to Gentiles in Acts 15. And this is why Paul brought emissaries from his congregation to offer, from his congregations throughout the diaspora, to offer tribute to the mother assembly in Jerusalem in Acts 21. And this implies that the Gentile assemblies, which were launched by Paul, were not operating as subcommunities with separate governance but that they were under the same authority and under the same ecclesiological model as the Jewish believers. Yeah, that's obvious. James and right? the elders I mean, in I agree. I, I agree with what he's saying there. That seems pretty obvious. That's, that's the, the very point he's making now is why I've, I think we've won Torah, clearly rejects Kinzer's bilateral ecclesiologies for the very points he's making, right? I, I, I think so. I, Okay, let, let, hang on. Uh, now, now, where, we'll get, now, where he goes with this? Yeah, that's the point. Okay. Messianic Judaism is the religion of the kingdom. If that's the case, wait, wait, wait. Say that again. Well, let's listen to the end of this other clip first, because maybe he'll wrap this up. Hang on. Well, what did he function hang on. as the representatives of the throne, the representatives of King Messiah? So ecclesiastical authority radiated out from them over all the assemblies of the world. The Jewish revolt and the destruction of Jerusalem interrupted that line of authority and set the stage for the development of an independent Gentile Christianity as we know, which fully emerged in the second century. Okay, so what now? Now let okay. me let, let me let me fill in some gaps here. What what uh, Lancaster is trying to say is, think of a bullseye. In the middle is Yeshua and his brother James. The next ring around that. Okay, so that's the center bullseye. The next ring around that is what it's it's the Jews. Okay, and on the outskirts of that, the next ring after that is the Gentiles. This is the graphic that he has, mind you. Okay, and so what he's saying is that all authority goes back to Yeshua, and uh, then it's given to the to the Jews. And so uh, the Gentiles, being on the outside, they get fil- they get they their uh, their I don't know religion or whatever you want their faith through uh, through the Jews. And so, so and so, so that the Jews have the James, authority. Is he saying that the religion of James is the religion that is today's the religion of the rabbis. 
he's saying messianic Judaism. So what he's saying is that the Hosh, the Hashkafa, that the the Jewish outlook, and he's going to wrap this up. Okay, is that, and he'll say this at the end. He'll say, look, the the uh, a messianic Jewish congregation might look exactly like a church. It might look like a rock concert or, or whatnot. But the Hashkafa, that's what matters. So this is what leads uh, brings us all together as one. You might have the Gentile church over here, which is the church down the road that has— oh, is, the, this, is this different than, uh, like, Tent of David? This sounds a little different outlook than I remember in Boaz's book, Tent of David. Well, I mean, it, seemed, it, seems it wouldn't different. surprise me if they changed, you know, changed theology. Oh, okay. I mean, I don't know. But uh, basically what he's saying is that, yes, the, the Messianic Judaism is, is, is what everyone, every believer should hold to. However, you don't have to keep the, the Torah if you're a Gentile, but what would make you a part of Messianic Judaism is your outlook. So you're going to approach things from a Messianic Hashkafa in a Gentile church. That's how you're a Messianic Jew. That's how you hold the Messianic Judaism as a Gentile. It's your outlook. That's what this whole conference is about, is their Hashkafa. So now, now you can listen to— Okay, can, so that's how—okay, so that's how it doesn't matter if you're in a Baptist church or if in you're a Mormon church or if you're—well, I don't know what they say about uh, Anglican. Uh, you could be a Nazarene. You could be a Catholic. So, you could be yeah. a, a Dutch reform. doesn't sure. matter because it's the, indiv- it's the outlook that you have as an individual— that's yeah, the Hashkafa. That, no, it's the Hashkafa. He, he's going to tell you that each congregation should have the same Hashkafa. He's going to say that the Hashkafa of each congregation should be a Messianic outlook. So you should approach the scriptures from a Messianic Jewish standpoint. But they could be behaving differently. Sure, absolutely. That doesn't matter. Well, what? Okay, so I don't understand what. I mean, does is that at this to some degree? It's like. It's like a truism. It's like, yeah, you go to any every church is going to look completely different. You know, even if you even one Torah communities, well, uh, hang on, they're not Ga- all going to look. They're not all going to look the same. Yeah, thank, so what, you, th- th- thank you for the thank you for the help here, Gary. Gary puts it perfectly. Spoiler alert: He says it can look like anything, as long as they are thinking correctly. That's exactly what what uh, Lancaster is saying here. Hmm. Now let's keep going. So l- listen to what he says here. Messianic Judaism is the religion of the kingdom. If that's the case, pause. Okay, but that so messianic Judaism is the religion of the kingdom. Now he's going to say if that's the case, okay. Oh, if that's okay. the case, but messianic Judaism is the religion of the kingdom. If that's the case, then there should be a solid, definable, practical, sociological. Sociologically sustainable, rational, biblically sound way for Messianic Gentiles to practice Messianic Judaism today and to identify our religion as Messianic Judaism. And we're calling this radial ecclesiology. But radial ecclesiology would presume that the ecclesia radiates out and orders itself around the center point. The center point, of course, is the Messiah. The center point is the, is the Jewish Yeshua, the king of the Jews, which also implies the Torah and the Jewish people. Like uh, bilateral ecclesiology. Okay, hang on just a sec. Now, let's keep... keep I, I sorry, have, go ahead. Go I ahead. Have a question. Yeah. Is, can I be a Torah-pursuant... Gent, a Gentile believer in Yeshua who's Torah pursuant, 
who studies the scriptures and not call my religion Messianic Judaism? Do I have to use the phrase Messianic Judaism I to describe th- my? If, can I just be a can I just be a Gentile disciple of Yeshua who who seeks to walk in the Torah? Yes, as long as you're according according to what I'm understanding Lancaster to say, what he's saying is yes, you can as long as you have the correct Hashkafa. No, but he's going to say, but he's going to call it messianic. He's going to say, "Well, you you're practicing." Yeah, you're pra- you're practicing messianic Judaism if the Hashkafa is right. But but what if I say I, d- I don't agree with that term, messianic Judaism? Well, that's okay. No, we're just quibbling over terms in his mind. So he he'll call it one thing, and I'll call it another. Sure, he made up a term, radial ecclesiology. That's what he's calling it right now. But listen to this, like uh, bilateral ecclesiology. Uh, radial ecclesiology presumes two different people groups, two separate people groups. Like bilateral ecclesiology, radial ecclesiology would maintain the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. This is not one law theology revisited. Instead, it should ideally maintain a clear... Is that a little little shot across the bow? What? (laughs) That's not one Torah revisited. Well, he doesn't want he doesn't want people to think that he's fallen back. Now, see, I think you're right. I think he's kind of moving a little bit away from Tent of David. And I, I think that he doesn't want people to think that he's going back to going back. He's not backtracking back to one Torah okay, okay, theology. So, so so he's trying to create a new herm, what we call like a new hermeneutical space. So I, what he's saying is that I'm not Kinzer, I'm not bilateral, I'm not one Torah, I'm then the new category is radial. And the radial is this radiation of authority from James in the early church. And Yeshua. Where he, and where he practiced uh, Messianic Judaism. Correct. And that all the ecclesia of the world you know, paid tribute and, and were edified by the uh, legislation, he calls it, like Acts 15, the dogma, the, the four uh, things that are listed there. Um, and so that model, he says, is demonstrates what he says. It's not a one Torah. He says that's not one Torah. That's radial ecclesiology. No, and the reason he would say that is because now listen, listen to the rest of this clip. He's going to tell you that a the Gentile should not be keeping Torah unless they've got, l- listen. Would unless maintain could, the yeah, distinction between Jews and Gentiles. This is not one law theology revisited. Instead. It should ideally maintain a clear distinction between Jews and Gentiles as two separate people groups within the kingdom. So much so that it should even discourage intermarriage without formal conversion. See, right there. Wow. So Jews okay, and Gentiles, so there. Yeah. they should be distinct. Okay, I agree that there's going to be a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Sure. There's, I, that's, that's a no-brainer. That's... That's clear. There's physical offspring of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then there's those who are not physical sure. offspring. And those who are, and from both those groups, God calls together new new creations in Messiah, right? Exactly. From both groups. And but what he's saying is that we need to go back to in looking at the material realm, I guess, and to the extent of of discouraging a Jewish girl from marrying a Gentile boy or a Gentile girl or vice from marrying versa, a yeah. Jewish boy. That we should discourage that. Wow. Unless there's formal conversion. Unless unless someone formal conversion. Okay, I see that is that that is uh, 
yeah. Uh, wow. So that, I mean, that's the, the rubber meets the road right there. Yeah, that's um, that's the point. That that's his point is that you're going to have a. So Christian- yeah, that's not one Torah. You're correct. I would agree. I'm I'm glad he made that distinction. That is not one Torah. Yeah, exactly. That's not one Torah. And he's and he's going to go on to tell he's you he's building that- he's building a case for ethnic ethnicity and nationalism. Um. And he's putting that over family, and he's and he's completely going against what Ephesians tells us that we're that we're uh, one in the body of Messiah, and saying that you, the Gentiles should be over here in their their own church, the Jews should be over here in their own church. And just as the Kohanim of Israel sep- maintain a separate, uh, uh, you know, the priest the, the priestly line in Israel within the Jewish people maintains a separate identity with unique responsi- responsibilities and prerogatives within the community of Israel. Jewish believers under this model. Uh, should maintain their separate identity as Jews with unique responsibilities and prerogatives within the ecclesia, within Let's the pause, assembly. Pause, pause, pause. Okay, what he just said. When you read the Torah and you see the Kohanim, the sons of Aaron, and they're given unique roles and responsibilities and marriage, uh, requ- uh, marriage rules uh, with respect to all of Israel, so too you have the church and... Jewish believers in Yeshua are the Kohanim for the body of Messiah. That's what I'm hearing him say. He's saying Jewish believers in Yeshua are the Kohan, are the priests for the rest of the ecclesia. And that therefore we need to maintain, just like the sons of Aaron had to maintain their line, their pure ethnic line, so too Jewish believers in Yeshua inside the larger, quote, church have to preserve their ethnic distinctive and is that what yes is that, am i hearing him correct yeah wow Radio where do we where do we get that where do we get that in scripture that jewish believers in yeshua are priests to the the non-jewish believers in yeshua where do we get that is that anywhere i mean i'm here is there just what and where do we get this forbidden of intermarriage except for conversion where's that in scripture this is, I guess, the, it, what we're seeing here is a bleed over of oral Torah. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course, we're getting a bleed over of oral Torah. Um, okay, let's. I want to keep going with this because you know what? If oh, we, someone, someone in the in the in the can a Jew convert to become a Gentile? Well, you no, not not halakhically. Uh, uh, I think that's Michael Gonzo. <laughs> he says, yeah, it, no, because. Once Israel, always Israel. Is the if you're going with Talmudic worldview, you you just become apostate. But you're always Israel. You cannot lose your Israelite identity once you're Israelite. So it's a one way. A Jew could become an Israelite, according an Israelite, to them. Or sorry, according. sorry, a Goy can become an Israelite, but it's never go. It can never go back the other way. You would only be you would be an apostate Jew, but you would not lose your. Jewishness. Okay, so let's keep going this, with this because if we can get through the rest of this clip and one more clip, we will have gotten through all of the clips that I have from Lancaster. And then we can stop the show and we'll pick up next week with uh, Aaron Eby. Okay. Radio ecclesiology would be presuming uh, two different people within one assembly with one differentiated religious expression, differentiated depending on if you're Jewish or Gentile, one differentiated religious venue, something like the Holy Temple, you know, which had a court of the Gentiles, one differentiated religious community composed of Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles. And this differentiation is manifested as 
a, this, uh, this differentiated religious expression, which is to say it's the same religion but with different roles. For example, I'll give you an example to try to make it more concrete, but I think Aaron's going to actually talk about this later today if I'm not mistaken. Jews and Gentiles can pray from the same liturgy. Jews and Gentiles can pray from the same liturgy, the traditional Sidor, but not every prayer is appropriate for a Gentile to pray because it was written for, for Jewish people to pray. So not every prayer in the traditional Sidor is appropriate for a Gentile to pray. So well, wait a minute. I would, agree. I, would agree with, I would agree with that. There's prayers, there's prayers in the Sidor that I don't think anybody should be praying. Exactly. I mean, I mean so, so this idea, we're getting into gray area here. The Mishnah says, that there are certain blessings where you, I, I wouldn't, if I'm a Gentile, I'm not going to say my fathers. I'm going to say the fathers uh, of Israel's fathers. Yeah, but Paul disagrees with that. But Paul disagrees yeah, with that. Yeah. So, so uh, okay, hang on. We got, we got 10 seconds left in this clip, and then I got one more clip for you. Appropriate for a Gentile to pray. So if some accommodation needs to be made if Gentiles are going to be routinely praying from a Siddur. Otherwise, they're going to confuse themselves. Yes, we will. And- so, yes, we will. And he puts himself in that category. Okay, so I got one more clip for you. This is where I think he's going to help wrap it up here. Okay, this is the end of his lecture. So my point is, it might look nothing at all like a synagogue. It might be fully accessible. He's talking about a Gentile community here uh, that that holds to radial ecclesiology. Might be completely seeker-sensitive. It might be like a rock and roll show. But underneath that exterior is a Messianic Jewish hashkafa. So when we say Messianic Judaism for all nations, we are not saying, and please hear me on this, we are not saying all nations need to start living like Jews and start looking like Jews and start adopting Jewish identity and be, you know, behaving in Jewish manners and eating gefilte fish. We are not saying anything like that. But we are saying that the Israel-centric, Zion-centered, pro-Torah, kingdom eschatology, that this worldview of Messianic Judaism has implications and ramifications for all Gentile believers, just like it does for Jewish believers, and ultimately for all of Israel and for the entire world. There you go. No. So you know, I, I haven't read all of Tent of David. I I got I could I couldn't read. Yeah, I couldn't keep going in it. Maybe I should need to pick it back well, up. Well, there's but. encouragement. There's a section in there where he encourages different uh, expressions of Christian faith to be you know, okay. You know, go ahead if you're this flavor. Here's some things. Here's where you can do if you're this one. It's like culturally mindful, you know, people come from different backgrounds, trying to appreciate uh, you're okay where you're at. Um, and th- in so doing, in my view, is a loss of the salt. No doubt. A loss of, so a loss of the light. Um, and it's just, what's it good to be trampled under men? In other words, there's no... Um, There's no warning. There's no exhortation concerning idolatry. Um, And and there's no theological... This is where the confusion... He talks about confusion. When we we abandon the evangelical, the rigorous soteriology, right? Ecclesiology, 
at the theology of, of like we were talking about before, justification. What is justification? We should know what that is. When Paul talks about it, he talks about it all the time. What is sanctification? What is glorification? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be new creations in Messiah? It seems like they're not. These are the really core pieces to understanding the apostolic writings, but they're not talking about that. And instead, they're bringing in categories called Judaism and rabbi and conversion and ethnic distinction and nationalism um, and uh, intermar- or, uh, prohibitions of intermarriage. All these things that are what I want to say are Talmudic categories. Um, and putting that on the believers, telling believers that this is the way they need to interpret the scriptures, this is the way they need to use the uh, look at the world, because if they don't, they're going to risk being anti-Semitic, because they're gonna, and they're going to be probably supersessionist. If they don't look at the world through Talmudic eyes, they're going to be uh, possibly a crypto-supersessionist. You don't even know it, but you're a supersessionist. And... I, to me, I, I feel sad. I feel frustrated. Um, it's good to know that this is out there um, because we need to be aware, you know, and we need, it's good that we have this conversation. I want to believe that these guys at FFOZ are brothers. I've only, the only one I've ever met is Boaz, so I, I don't know any of them. I've met them all except for Aaron Eby and and, uh, Jacob Franck. Here's the thing is that, uh, you know, you have two guys, Lancaster and Janicki, who both identify themselves as Messianic Gentiles. And so basically, I don't understand how they're preaching that Gentiles should should, uh, let Jews keep their Jewish identity, quote-unquote Jewish identity, um, uh, yet they're sitting there wearing kippos and and uh, they're part of a you know their synagogues and uh, you know all these kind of things. It do- it doesn't make sense. Of course, they're going to go to a d- divine invitation theory, uh, which I mean, it, it it feels like there's confusion on their part of uh, you know they're they're so desperately looking in from what I from what I think i'm getting is is that they they think they've got they've tried to figure it out but they're still looking for this identity here's all of them and this is back to kinzer's book post-missionary does a believer in yeshua does a jewish believer in yeshua is is in a conundrum do they how do they how do they stay connected to the to the jewish people who have institutionally rejected yeshua how do they how do i stay connected to my people and be a believer in Yeshua at the same time. And what they're scared of, if I hear it right, is they're scared of the missionaries. They're scared of evangelicalism because they don't want to tell Jews to abandon the Torah. But on the other hand, they are also impotent with telling rabbinic Jews that they need to discern between the Word of God and the traditions of men. In other words, they don't have a—the the Jewish believer in Yeshua— who is wants to stay connected to Israel is afraid of criticizing Israel. He's afraid to criticize the rabbis because if he stands up and and criticizes the Talmud or criticizes the Zohar, he risks being marginalized, and that's his biggest fear is to be marginalized because he wants to show that he's connected. And if these people are rejecting me, these are my people. I'm in a conundrum. Well, guess what? 
That's Yeshua. That's identification with Yeshua. Identification with Yeshua is the outside the camp, suffering with him outside the camp. It's the fact that, look, the whole prophetic tradition, like Yeshua said, are on the margins of whom the world was not worthy, it says in Hebrews 11. They were sawed in half. They were stoned by God's people, by Israel. So identification with the faith of the, of the described in the gospel and discipleship of Yeshua, which is the narrow way and that few find, as Yeshua himself teaches us, and building on the rock of his word rather than the temptation to see beauty in man's creation and exaltation of man, which is idolatry. See, but, but hey— we, Wait, hang on though. I don't. I don't think that that. Like, I get what you're saying, but I, I, you know, I don't think that that's what's honestly motivating in their mind. What's motivating the the teachers at FFOZ? I think that they honestly believe that they that they're they're trying to adopt what they think the scriptures teach. I have to believe that. I can't imagine that they're sitting around in their in their uh, in their meeting no, saying. I, I, I question that. Here's why. Because why would they? Why would they enforce conversion? As, as a legitimate, as God's will. Why would they um, say that, ordain rabbis and, and, and say that they have unique authority as Kohanim in the, in the larger body of Messiah? That they have to realize, if we sat down and say that, yes, they would have to say those are not biblical categories. We are clinging to extra biblical categories, and we're putting them up here. We're putting them up and making them primary categories. They would have to acknowledge that because there's no we could sit down and they're not going to be able to they're not going to be able to show scripture and so they're going to say well it's oral Torah and there's oral Torah that goes back to Mount Sinai and it's a separate revelation and so now they're expanding their faith commitment to that of what Neusner calls the myth of the two Torahs that, that Moshe received two Torahs at Sinai the written Torah you need more than the written Torah you need more than scripture you can have the scripture but if you don't have oral Torah you're not going to be able to understand it now they're getting into Talmudic worldview again, and we have the problem of anachronism. And I don't know. I don't know how else to. To if you want to talk about anachronism? Then I would join in. Uh, join our show next week as we look at Aaron Eby's uh, discussion, which you can find in the show notes from today. Go watch it beforehand. It's uh, it's interesting to say the least, and it, I'm sure it'll bring a lot of uh, discussion next week. Uh, you know, I, I think this has been a good conversation. It's hard to, uh, you know, it's hard to, I don't know. It's it's hard for me to believe that these guys, I don't think the, that these uh, teachers are trying to be malicious in any way, shape, or form, but they certainly are not doing ju justice to the biblical text. And I think that's your point, Rob, is that they're doing, is that they're trying to bring in outside sources to interpret something that doesn't need outside sources to be looked at. That's the problem. And, in and so, here's, here's the thing. Here, here's the thing. It's these same people. And this is not. This doesn't mean everybody needs to be out there learning Bible languages. I don't mean to say that. But what I don't see among any of these guys, well, maybe Kinzer, maybe Rudolph have done done language study, but it's not a big. They're not exegeting the te exegeting the text. Uh, in other words, when when I hear these guys, I hear a worldview they're promoting. I don't get an, that they're explaining the meaning of Scripture. You see what I mean? I don't get. That, that they're explaining scripture. I get the promotion of a worldview, of a hash, uh, what they would call hashkafa. Just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it.
All right, let's uh, let's wrap it up, guys. We thank everybody who's in the chat room today, being a part of the uh, the uh, the discussion with us. Uh, it's always good to see all the man. The, the chat room's just been going off too. Uh, <laughs> specific people have written significant portions <laughs> in the chat room today, which has been great. Uh, we we enjoy the conversation in there. And uh, if you want to, uh, if you would like to uh, tell us something or be a part of the conversation, even though you're not in the chat room. Go ahead, send us an email, chag at torresource.com or Rob's email as well, rvanhoff at torresource.com. Uh, it sure is be- nice being back from vacation and being able to uh, to do this show again. Man, we and don't uh, get discouraged, but don't be discouraged. Yeah, exactly. Don't be discouraged. We, we, we have to do the hard things sometimes. We have to have these discussions. No, they're good. They're good conversations. Um, and we're just trying to wrestle with what uh, with what people in the messianic realm are, are trying to put forward. Uh, and we're just giving our, our opinion on what we think the scripture says and what uh, and the reason that we're basing it on the scriptures is because we think that the scriptures are given from our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah, 